Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Cross-border planning has been a major issue for high net worth clients for years. Jobs, new family situations, and geopolitics often send people to different countries for different opportunities. All of this can have tax implications around an estate plan. Here to help us think about this is Brent Nelson. Brent is a partner at the Ramon Law Firm in Tucson, Arizona, and represents a variety of cross-border clients. He hosts the popular Wealth and Law podcast and co-edits the Arizona Estate Planning and Probate Handbook. He's been elected to serve as a fellow at the American College of Trust and Estate Council and chair of the Probate and Trust section of the State Bar of Arizona. Welcome aboard, Brent. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, and thank you very much for having me appear on your podcast. This is a nice return here, and we're going to be talking about cross-border planning, which is, I think, getting more and more important, especially in this day and age with geopolitical risk. We've got the Ukraine and Russia and Taiwan and China, and even Canada is kind of a problem now, depending on who you talk to. So the timing is actually really good on this. To start a little bit here, what constitutes cross-border planning from your background? Well, first of all, Canada has always been a problem. So I don't know if that's a new thing. <laughs> I kid all my Canadian friends, please do not do not text me. <laughs> well, I mean, cross border is when I think about cross border, I'm thinking about it in the context of cross international borders. So I'm not thinking you're going across a state line, although that has its own set of complicated factors that come into play. And it's actually it's it's complicating enough to cross state borders because we have this beautiful republic with 50 different sets of laws. And so you have to negotiate the different sets of laws. So now imagine you've crossed a uh, international border. You've got two completely different, potentially two completely different legal systems with totally different ways to view the law and different entities in the law and the taxpayers, let alone the fact that you have distance potentially between people and property. And the cross or the crossing portion of that, in my mind, is either one of those two things. It's either people or it is property. If you have both, it's the most complicated. If you only have one, it's still complicated. Even things like language are a problem or concepts that are well-worn law here that may not apply or even be contemplated somewhere else. You could be doing good planning here and it is almost not unrecognized elsewhere. And not very helpful, frankly. I'll give you a quick example of that that I run into quite a bit. So I'm in physically in Tucson, Arizona, although my practice is international. But just because of where I am geographically, I have a lot of clients who have cross-border issues between the U.S. and Mexico. We in the U.S. use trusts like they're going out of style because trusts are great. They're super handy. But trusts come from old British law. They don't come from anywhere else. It's British. It's not continental Europe. It's British. And by and large, although it's not 100% true because Louisiana is a bit of a, an outlier, and of course, we, start, we pick and choose things and add them to our our legal system. But by and large, our legal system is based on British law. And so trusts work great here. When you go to Mexico, their legal system is not based on British law. It's based on Spanish law, continental European law, which is more of a quote unquote civil law jurisdiction. 
the distinction is not important for this podcast, but they don't have trust. They have a form of trust. They call it a video commiso. It's more like a contractual relationship. And it can come up in a number of different circumstances with real estate. It can come up with businesses, but it's not a true trust. And so when you try to go to Mexico with a trust from the U.S., you get a big stop sign and they say, no, we don't even know what that is. We don't know how to handle it here. You've got to pick some other vehicle. And so even that scenario, we're we're so close and we do many, many billions of dollars worth of trade just between my state and Mexico. We still can't communicate between our legal systems on that very basic function of a trust in the United States, notwithstanding the fact that they're so common in the U.S. And it's amazing too, because you know you go to Europe and so on, and they have concepts like trusts called foundations. That's also big in the Middle East, and but there are distinct differences that that don't translate well here. And I guess only Wyoming and New Hampshire technically recognize the concept of a foundation. And for listeners who nerd out on this stuff. I'm not talking about a charitable foundation. This is more of a construct to sort of provide governance over wealth that fits some of the bills of a trust, but not exactly. And I'm sure Asia has a whole bunch of different scenarios as well that, uh, well, some things may plant themselves nicely in British foundations. And I don't mean foundation as in the foundation I just talked about. I meant like a building foundation, but that there's just lots of alien terminology or things that mean one thing in one place and something else somewhere else. And it works the same up and down the list of entities, both on the U.S. side and then on the side of whatever jurisdiction you're dealing with. Because every, notwithstanding what many Americans might think, the rest of the world is equally smart and sophisticated. <laughs> That's right. And so they, they have many different legal systems and, and many different legal entities and structures, and they have their own way of doing it oftentimes, although there are similarities. And understanding how they view their particular entities and then the way the U.S. views those particular entities and vice versa, honestly, is like some days I feel like it's 60 to 70 percent of my job. It's just trying to figure out how these things match up, if, if at all, and then try to sort out how do we use them. Well, and one of the things that's interesting, too, I mean, we all have statutes and case law and things like that. But when you've sort of identified the countries that are in play, oftentimes you have to check the treaties that are in force or not in force. And occasionally there can be gaps or commas in places where things weren't drafted. And all of a sudden, major sources of wealth and major tax implications or other asset protection can hinge on strange things that may not be part of the typical trust in the state's practice. Yeah, it's very true. And it's nobody's fault, really. It's just it becomes more complex because you're dealing with two different legal systems and sometimes two very different legal systems. And for me, from time to time, clients are a little bit frustrated with that, that things that maybe in their mind seem very straightforward, they're just not that straightforward. And it's true in even very friendly jurisdictions to us. So we were talking about Canada for example, not not to pick on Canada. I I love Canada. I do tons of business with Canadian lawyers and clients. And Canada, notwithstanding how close it is to us, notwithstanding how close the society and the culture is to us, the media is almost the same. You go up there, like all the TV stations are basically American TV stations, but Canadianized. The legal system looks and feels like the US legal system. They are not identical. And their tax rules are not identical to ours. And you have to be really careful, even with that close of a country to us, to not step in landmines. And it's actually really easy to step in landmines if you just don't know what you're doing. 
And you can't assume, right? You can't assume that your legal system controls. We'll get into that in just a second, because I think what we were talking about before was the concept of delineating between inbound situations and outbound situations. One of the major decisions, I think, is is which law do you want to apply? And a lot of times, sometimes it can and it can't, depending on your facts and circumstances. But that choice of law, that jurisdictional component is, is what you're trying to achieve in order to achieve certain goals, whether it's tax or asset protection or any of the a whole bunch of other ones. How do you think about that vis-a-vis when a client comes to you with a complex, multi-jurisdictional component, are you thinking about it from a, what jurisdiction is going to do best for them and how do I fit the whole thing in? Or is it, I've got a fact pattern and there are things that sort of sit out there and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to synthesize this into a into sort of this omnibus solution. Oftentimes it depends on whether you're dealing with inbound versus outbound scenarios. So that might be the right framework to tease this out for you just a bit. So let, let's, if you start with inbound and by inbound, I mean foreigners moving to the states or foreigners investing in the states. If they're investing here or they're moving here physically, then at some level, they need American planning. But it might be the case that the American plan is either contained to the U.S., so it really only governs the U.S., or it is controlled by a structure that's in an, actually in a different uh, jurisdiction. So you might have an entity that sits in their home jurisdiction. That's the real governing entity. That's the entity that controls the whole piece. And then we try to tie the two pieces together across the border and try to do it in a way that is efficient. I know that all sounds really vague. Something I've seen in my practice, the concept of there's a choice to be made whether you want to engage in the American system or not. And it sounds like what you're talking about is many times you keep things offshore in a sense as long as possible or in a jurisdiction that the family is comfortable in as long as possible. And then you siphon off assets into the U.S. as needed so that your exposure to the U.S. system is understood. It's not total. You're not making sort of this binary decision, I'm all US or not US. You're seeing how the seeing how it goes and limiting your exposure up to the point where uh, when they can make a larger decision later. That's true. And really doing so strategically and where it makes sense. And there's no one size fits all oh. <laughs> um, cookie cutter answer to it, unfortunately. Otherwise I'd tell you what it was, but it just doesn't exist. But there are a couple of really common issues. So Issue number one, if if you're talking about somebody who has physically moved here, and sometimes I'm surprised by how easily this is missed, but in my mind, issue number one is they moved here. What if they get sick? So you've got to do all of the basic, 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 easy stuff, the healthcare directives and living wills, and and they might have a, a will here that ties in with their plan in their home jurisdiction. But if they're going to be here, and they're going to be here for a substantial amount of time, I don't want them ending up in the hospital and having to open up a guardianship proceeding for a foreigner in the United States. That is not a great scenario. And it's easily planned around. But that's for me, like right at the top, you have to do that. That has nothing to do with their money. But then it might be that they are in a situation where they can they can derive some tax benefits from investing in the U.S. and using some of our structures. So we were talking about trusts. Trusts in the U.S. are great. They're very powerful. You were talking about asset protection. We have great asset protection laws in a lot of jurisdictions. We have great tax laws in a lot of jurisdictions. We have the best economy to invest in for the most part as far as access to capital. We have great real estate investments. We have great capital markets. 
So it's a really attractive place to be. Well, it turns out outside of the real estate scenario, most foreigners who aren't here for at least half the year, they don't pay capital gains in the US. And so it can be quite handy for them if they live in a jurisdiction that's sort of a low tax jurisdiction to invest in the US through a trust that is structured as what's called a grantor trust, meaning that they're treated as if they own everything in the trust. They get all the benefits of having a US trust, asset protection, et cetera. But it's a grantor trust, meaning they're still the taxpayer. They can invest in the US. And when they sell assets and create capital gain events, they don't get taxed on the capital gains in the US. That's a great system. And they're, you know, that's a great structure for somebody who's in that scenario. And they can come in and take advantage of the US market. And they're in this trust structure. So if something does happen to them, like they become incapacitated or they, or they die, you've got the trust structure there to protect the assets and then marshal the assets for administrative purposes. And it's particularly ideal for multi-generational situations, for kids who've come over here and gone to college and they're sort of building their lives and either becoming American citizens or otherwise they're here for a long time and getting green cards and so on. That's a structure in some ways where the the parent who may or may not choose to be in the United States, they can, again, going back to that example, keep things quote unquote, foreign for as long as possible. And then the kids can enjoy it at that point in time when it's time for them to enjoy and build their families and have use of those assets. Does that square? It does. Yeah, it, it's exactly right. And there's a few reasons for that. And and there's a few reasons why, at least in my practice, trusts tend to be a prevalent vehicle for doing that. It has to do a little bit with the U.S. estate tax laws for non-residents. And by non-residents, I mean people who haven't moved here with the intent to stay here permanently. That's the test. If you haven't moved to the States with the intent to stay here permanently, setting aside any sort of treaty that might say otherwise, but if you haven't moved here with with the intent to stay here permanently, then you're a non-resident for estate tax purposes. That's good because all of your worldwide assets aren't subject to estate tax here, only your US assets. It's bad because you get taxed on everything over $60,000 in value when you die all of the U.S. assets, I should say, over $60,000. There are a tremendous amount of exceptions to that, but that's sort of the general rule. Now, let's assume that you have a mom or dad. They want to invest in the states. They build a structure that can protect them from estate tax. And when they die, they have kids who are also not U.S. residents. And typically, it means that those kids, if they just receive the assets in the U.S. directly, they could essentially be stepping into an estate tax problem. Well, if those assets are held in a trust and the trust is structured properly, those kids can be beneficiaries of this U.S. trust and they're sheltered from estate tax. It doesn't matter how much money is inside that trust. They can be sheltered from estate tax when they die. And again, if their exemption is $60,000, that's an, a very meaningful tax savings. So those trust structures allow you to do that and, and they, they can be quite powerful on a multi-generational scale. So I seem to recall an example back in my career where a non-resident alien couple transferred an enormous amount of wealth into dynasty trusts. That was away from gift tax, capital gains tax, estate tax, all of that. How would something like that work? I seem to recall a big exemption. Was that my misremembering? Well, there's not an exemption, so to speak. So the estate tax exemption is $60,000. Nobody's really doing cartwheels down the hallway for that. Right. The gift tax exemption is zero. You get the annual exclusion, which is $16,000 per person that you make a gift to. If you're making uh, present interest gifts, basically direct gifts, that's a $16,000 exclusion. Beyond that, there is no exemption and there is no marital deduction. You get a special annual exclusion for gifts to spouses, but it's pretty nominal. 
So there is a, a large exception to the gift tax rules as it relates to non-residents of the U.S. and non-resident non-citizens, I should say. If you're a citizen, all bets are off. But if you're a non-resident non-citizen, meaning you haven't moved here with the intent to stay here permanently, you're only subject to gift tax in the U.S. on U.S. located tangible assets. So all intangible assets and all tangible assets not located in the United States are not subject to U.S. gift tax. That allows you to do a large transfer of intangible assets into trusts, avoid triggering U.S. gift tax, and then now you've got the assets housed in these trusts where it can be protected from estate tax going forward. So there are planning opportunities if if people are aware of them and they don't say, do all the investing in the U.S. up front and then come to somebody like me afterwards, it becomes very difficult once they've already done the investment, particularly if they're investing in real estate, to then unwind that into the structure we're talking about without having to pay any tax in the U.S. And so is one of the theories that if you've got intangibles, if you have that housed in a foreign company, that's one way to put the veneer on top of of the structure so that it passes muster and it's not a U.S. asset. Right. So typical, yeah, typical structure would be you'd have a foreign company that the U.S. views as a corporation. The family invests through this corporation into the U.S. market, and then they transfer stock in that corporation to the trust. The stock is intangible, so there's no gift tax. It's also not located in the U.S., so there's no gift tax. And the existence of that corporation is a blocker between the non-resident who owns the shares initially and the investments in the U.S. Because from the eyes of the IRS, what they own is stock in a foreign corporation. And stock in a foreign corporation isn't located in the U.S., and they only pay a state tax on assets that are actually located inside the United States. What you have to watch out for is real estate where that jurisdictional issue can pop up or things that have real definitive source income that could flow up and potentially screw things up at some level. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, a typical example is this happens to me all the time. Okay. This is almost like a, a weekly phone call I have with somebody. <laughs> Married couple from Canada. In my case, it's very frequently Western Canada. They come down and they buy a vacation home in California or Arizona or some other warm, sunny place. <laughs> right. It's titled in husband and wife's names. Well, if it's 50-50, but both spouses did not contribute 50-50 to the equity value of the house, that's a gift. And like I said, you, you have a somewhat nominal exemption from gift tax, and that's a gift of tangible assets in the U.S. So right off the bat, you have a potential gift. That's problematic. Then if they ever want to transfer that gift, certainly by sale, but even if they do try to gift it to somebody else, you have to work through the thicket of FERPTA, the Foreign Investment and Real Property Tax Act, which is a pretty difficult act to get around. It essentially applies to every transaction. There are, there are a handful of non-tax transactions that you can get exemptions from FERPTA, but otherwise there's a withholding requirement on the amount realized on any transfer. Plus, if you sell the asset, unlike a typical American who might be able to shelter some of the sale of their principal residence from capital gains, that doesn't apply to non-residents who own a second home here. And they may be exposed to capital gains tax on the sale of that real estate, even if the capital gains tax is less than the FERPTA withholding amount, which is 15% of the amount realized on the transaction. So it becomes really difficult to shift somebody out of that ownership into a structure that would have protected them from estate tax without triggering some amount of tax or some amount of filing and compliance and paying yahoos like me to deal with. 
And but it's an easy footfall to fall into, and many, 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 many people do it. So before we head into the outbound issues, which is we can probably have our own podcast on that. So when you deal with people who espouses one's a citizen and the other is not a citizen, and you're dealing with inbound issues, that's its own complication, right? It is, yeah. Again, because if you make gifts to your non-citizen spouse, there's no deduction. You don't get a mar- you don't get a marital deduction for your gifts. You're going to be eating into your lifetime exemption amount. Currently, it's about $12 million per person, so that's quite handy. But for ultra high net worth clients, this is a problem. And if you, the American, die and you leave your assets and they have to happen to exceed that exemption amount from a state tax, whatever happens to be at the time you die, everything in excess to that that you give to your spouse also doesn't qualify for a marital deduction for estate tax purposes unless it's put into a very specific type of trust called a qualified domestic trust. And the qualified domestic trust really just kicks the can down the road and allows you to defer paying the estate tax until your surviving spouse dies. So you just can't, it becomes really cumbersome to shelter property between spouses from estate tax. So let's hit the outbound issues. And we're talking about American citizens who are moving abroad. And I'll preface this by reminding people because it always seems to pop out that U.S. citizens are taxable on worldwide income. So just going and moving to Malta or trying to do different things with jurisdiction or Swiss bank accounts and all the things that that are good for John Grisham and Dan Brown novels, et cetera, that is usually not super realistic for the outbound types. But tell us a little bit about your experience on that front and how you get people who are working abroad or thinking about expatriating abroad, how you you think about that and get them prepared. Well, you're certainly right that U.S. citizens are taxed on their worldwide income. That's based on citizenship. We don't care where you live. And we don't care where your assets are, where your income comes from. Unless there's a very specific provision in a tax treaty, you're screwed. You're going to have to pay tax here on, on that income. So you have to go in with that perspective. This equally applies to green card holders, and it equally imply, applies to people who become tax residents in the U.S., which may be something short of a green card. It could just be you're here on a visa and you're here long enough that you become a tax resident. So all of those people combined are taxed the same way as if they're citizens, they just all can't vote. What happens is ownership of foreign assets sometimes is penalized. So if you have investments in foreign mutual funds, which be a perfectly normal thing to do if you're living and investing abroad, those foreign mutual funds are typically taxed as passive foreign investment companies or PFIX. The PFIX regime is very penalizing. You essentially pay ordinary income tax instead of capital gains, and you get charged interest as if you underpaid your tax when you get a distribution or you sell off the investment, which could be interest accruing over many, many, many years. It's as many years if you as you've held the investment. So if you're a long-term investor and then you sell, you could be ch- charged this huge interest charge, and that comes as quite a surprise. The same thing applies to American-controlled foreign corporations, so controlled foreign corporations or CFCs is the name of them. They're also taxed in a negative way. You can get taxed on current income, even if you don't get any distributions from those. And really, we're trying to encourage people to not invest in foreign markets. But the estate tax also applies to your worldwide assets. So it doesn't matter where your assets happen to be, the US estate tax applies to that as well. So you start getting into these weird scenarios where people are owning property in other jurisdictions, they may even be paying all their taxes in that foreign jurisdiction. That is not sufficient for U.S. purposes. And on top of all of that, we require quite duplicative and onerous reporting. This has nothing to do with taxes. This is just giving the IRS information about your holdings abroad. And you have to file those things every year. And if you don't, there are huge penalties and potentially criminal penalties for not doing it. So yeah, a lot of the John Grisham novel stuff doesn't actually work 
the U.S. is wise to those issues, and you just can't get around these tax rules. The right move for someone who is contemplating either job posting abroad or a full-on move abroad, what's the right thing to do for them? Obviously, it's to see advisors like you to kind of say, okay, here's the country I'm going to. Here's here's what I think my life is going to look like. How do I structure things accordingly? What else should we be thinking about on that front? Well, everything becomes doubly complicated, and so you need twice the advisors. That is the main thing. You need to get competent advisors in the jurisdiction where you're going who understand the tax rules and are familiar with the cross-border issues because you're going to have two sets of laws to comply with every year and you really need good people because we're not unique in penalizing people for messing up their taxes. So you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be out of compliance in the foreign jurisdiction and then you definitely don't want to be out of compliance in the US. And it's an area of the tax law that's esoteric enough that unless you're working with somebody who deals with it constantly, it is highly likely they'll make a mistake. So you really got to get an expert on your side in both countries. And, and accountants as well. I mean, it's, uh, you know, relying on the U.S. accountant to file something that's in Spanish or Italian. <laughs> that, 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 not that's good. Scary no, that is not good. <laughs> and they all have to talk to each other. That's the other thing. It's like anything else. You're, you're putting a team together and you then you really have to communicate and sometimes over communicate to make sure everybody's on the same page. Have you run into situations where people are going to be an investment banker or something over in London or do some job in Italy or over in Russia or wherever, and the tax burden makes it uneconomical for them to do it? From time to time, yeah. It's usually the reverse. People get sick of paying US taxes and happen to report everything here, so they they hightail it out of here. But from time to time yet. I mean, the UK is a fairly high tax jurisdiction. So people do tire of paying tax in the UK. And I see that from time to time. What ends up happening is Americans go abroad, they work, they acquire assets. Oftentimes, they're if they're working in some sort of company, they're acquiring pension funds and, and retirement style assets in those countries. And then they come back to the States. And those funds and those assets don't always speak well to the U.S. tax system. And so it can create very challenging situations for them. This is a common issue in places like Australia. It's a difficult issue in the U.K., for example, but we have a quite robust treaty with the U.K. that is better on those issues than the U.S.-Australia treaty, for example. And it's very jurisdictional. Some places have retirement accounts that we deal with well, like the U.K., the same is true for Canada for the most part. And some places have retirement accounts that we do not deal with well. And that's very much true for, say, Australia. So it just depends on the location. As you said, the people start, you know, they're abroad, maybe they're taken with it or they get married over there or something like that. And they go, hey, you know what? U.S. is no longer for me. This is onerous. So I'd rather thinking about not being a citizen. I want to get out of this regime. I spoke to a fellow, David Lesperance, last year, I guess, who does a lot of a lot of this type of cross-border planning as well. And uh, we got to the topic of having multiple passports and multiple citizenships with the idea of maybe toggling away from the U.S. if you were so inclined not to be a U.S. citizen anymore. And, you know, I think we came to the conclusion or I came to the conclusion and he advises around this is that if you want to leave the U.S., it's a big deal. Maybe take us through that. Well, it can be a big deal, partly because we, like many places, okay, we're not unique in this, but we, like many places, say if you are going to give up your passport, because we tax you based on citizenship. If you're going to give up your passport or you held a green card for at least eight years of the last 15 years, when you give up the passport or when you give up that green card or lose your green card, you could be exposed to an exit tax. And the exit tax says, we will pretend you sold all of your assets everywhere. 
And then there are little carve-outs, of course. But we'll pretend that you sold all of your assets and we'll charge you capital gains on the event. We'll give you a relatively nominal exemption from capital gains. It's about $700,000 right now. But otherwise, we're going to charge you capital gains to leave. Then when you go, if this applied to you, you're what we like to call a covered expatriate. You're so special. So you're a covered expatriate. And that means if you ever gift or bequeath assets to a U.S. resident, there's the potential for the U.S. resident to have to pay an inheritance tax here that is basically an estate tax on them. It's not on you. It's on them. They have to pay this inheritance tax. It's the only inheritance tax we have federally, and it's very onerous. The dance that you're trying to dance in that scenario is to try to help people to not be covered expatriates. And there are certain tax liability, there's an averaging test and tax liability and net worth test that you have to meet to avoid covered expatriate status. Usually you need some time to plan for it, maybe a couple of years to plan for it. And then you can try to get somebody out of here without becoming a covered expatriate and having all these horrible things happen. And you have to have a citizenship to go to, right? I mean, you can't just drop your citizenship and have nothing. That It's helpful. Yeah, it is helpful. Then, then you then you have the guy who was in the in the French airport that couldn't go anywhere because he didn't have a passport anywhere and he was stuck in international space. Yeah, that can happen. From the US, it is actually conceivable to give up your citizenship and have no residency anywhere for tax purposes. Of course, you can't go anywhere because you'll be stuck, but have no you could have no residency in any jurisdiction for tax purposes because we don't tax people based on their residency. So you, you could technically have a residency in the U.S., give up your citizenship, and then move to another jurisdiction full-time, maintaining your residency in the U.S. somehow, based on the facts and circumstances. So you're not a resident there, not a resident here for tax purposes. You're not a resident anywhere. And that is conceivably possible. It's just the mechanics of doing that and traveling internationally are fraught with danger. And, and getting worse. But some people try. <laughs> right. So you know, as we wind down here, what, what are the opportunities for advisors? This is obviously complex stuff. And I would think myself that the best thing you can do is have an ecosystem of people that are conversant, more than conversant, expert in spotting the international issues and probably expert in dealing with certain ones that they that they have experience with. How do you think about that? And, and where can advisors really expand their practice? Well, they can certainly expand their practice by being aware of the issues. And you as the advisor, even if you don't want to be the expert yourself, if you're aware that the issue exists, that makes you the concierge. That's a huge value add. And you immediately differentiate yourself because the percentage of advisors that even know that these issues exist is sadly very small, <laughs> yeah, very low. <laughs> wanted to say something uh, soft on the profession here, but it, it's quite low. So just being aware of the issue, it's the first feather in your cap because so few people are even aware that it exists. But once you know the issue, then you can guide clients and you can really add value to them. And for me, if you're in a unique sort of speaking from a business perspective, if you're in a unique scenario where you can spot an issue that other people can't, that means you can charge a premium. Scarcity means you charge a premium. I think too, the important part is that if you're advising the client and you've got high caliber expertise to solve a specific problem, you can help them be better clients by reminding them of the different lifestyle issues, the economics around what you're doing, et cetera, so that they have, I hate the word, but let's call it a more holistic decision around it. And that the legal points and the accounting points that get you from A to Z aren't completely controlling. There's sort of a broader sense of, okay, where do, where am I right now? Where do I I want to be in five years? Where do I want to be in 10 years plus so that when they make a big decision like this, they're sort of seeing it from a longer event horizon? 
Yeah, I see that also from the perspective of, say, financial advisors. They may not be custodying investments abroad. They may not even be able to custody investments with non-residents of the U.S. If they have clients and they know the client, say, has kids who live abroad, which is quite common, they at least can identify these issues up front and then, like I say, like add a lot of value to that client. The, the client's going to love you. If you can spot these issues and put together the team that will resolve the issue or at least mitigate the issue, the client is going to love you. I'm speaking only from my perspective and my experience. I have learned that clients really appreciate that kind of nuanced expertise. Even when I, for example, I'm not a Mexican attorney, I ne would never tell anybody that I am an expert on Mexican law, but I can at least spot some of the issues coming on the horizon and then pull together the pieces to help us resolve them. Yeah, you can get 85% of the way there and then deploy the experts to get you over the finish line and get the planning I's dotted and T's crossed. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, from an advisor perspective, if you do this for one executive at a significant company in your geography, the word will get out pretty quickly that for this particular nuanced area, you were able to, you know, execute that, I think, just, just helps the practice. Yes. Definitely. It can be a great marketing tool for professionals if they do want to sort of hone in on this and, and gain some sort of expertise in the area. Because again, only speaking from my own perspective, what tends to happen because of the scarcity of knowledge in the professions, your otherwise competitors become your referral sources because you're so niched that they're not going to handle it and they're never going to get up to speed on the issue. Yeah. By the time they're ready, it's taken too long and it's not a great use of their time. If you've, if you're able to invest nicely in a one or two of these things, it tends to sprout into other ones. It's kind of like being an ERISA lawyer. No other lawyer wants to be an ERISA lawyer. So ERISA lawyers are the only ERISA lawyers. <laughs> That's a funny byplay. I just interviewed an ERISA lawyer right before this one. And so I, I, you're right. And, and there's all sorts of Supreme Court cases that came out. There may be more ERISA lawyers than we think. But uh, so Brent, how do we stay in touch with you? You're based in Tucson. Give us your contact information. And by the way, folks, this will all be on the show notes as well. How do we stay in touch? I'm all over social media. So at Wealth and Law all spelled out, no ampersands. So every platform, I'm there. You can find me there. Ramon is the name of the firm, R-I-M-O-N-L-A-W.com. So RamonLaw.com, very clever. And all my contact information is there. And honestly, if you just type in Brent Nelson Lawyer, you're going to find me. So the Google knows that I exist. Well, and I also want to throw an endorsement at Wealth and Law. That it's it's a go-to podcast for me on a lot of different subjects. I think you do a terrific job with it as far as getting into the right amount of detail on certain subjects. And it makes people like me smarter faster, which is always appreciated. Well, I appreciate that. That's the goal. I, I encourage people to check that out. In the meantime, Brent, thanks for being on. And uh, we'll look forward to keeping an eye on you. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.